Welcome back to Beyond Prisons. This is Jay. Today, we're excited to have professor and author Dan Berger to speak with Kim and Brian about his research and work. Before I kick it over to Kim to introduce Dan, I wanted to bring you a clip from a recent conversation I had with Ben Yu, Hannibal Rahsan of the Free Alabama Movement, about the DOJ investigation of prisons in Alabama that was announced last October and the prospects of that investigation under Alabama's former U.S. Senator Jeff Sessions. Yeah, well, they've investigated the Alabama prison system before. They invested in, I mean, they investigated Tutwiler Prison. They found over 20 years of sexual abuse. They found out women were being beat, women were being raped, women were being impregnated. They were having children. They were being forced to have abortions. And nobody got prosecuted. Nobody went to jail. Uh, They're talking about with this new prison reform bill, they're going to build a new prison. Um, the FBI said they got to make changes. So when the media went to Tutwiler, the commissioner took the media in with them. And they told them, you can't talk to anybody. And we're only going to take you to one part of the prison. Well, the only part of the prison they took them to is where they had invested a few dollars in improving the showers, putting a few shower curtains up. But they didn't do that in the whole prison. They just did that in one section of the prison. And so the FBI has allowed that to be sufficient. They have not went back and and held them accountable for We don't even know how many children were born. Mm-hmm. We don't know where these children are. We don't know what their conditions are. If the mother is incarcerated and the father is married and has another secret family, where is that child? If the mother got a life sentence, a life without parole, where is that child? And how many of those children are there out there? Okay, we had, in order for those abortions to occur, the healthcare workers, professionals, had to be involved. They had to give those women something to make that abortion occur. They had to also give these women prenatal care who were pregnant and carried those babies to term. Those people are complicit in crimes also. Not a single person in healthcare lost their health life. So when you say that federal investigations are, are going on and ongoing and this and that and that, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, when we found out about it, we asked, what are your intentions? What is it that you intend to do? Are you are you going to hold some people accountable? I ain't been no turnover in the Department of Corrections. I think I read something where it said since they announced their investigation, eight more people have been killed. Are they going to bring uh, wrongful death lawsuits? Are they going? What are they going to do? You know, and it's not what is going to happen now that Jeff Sessions is in office. Why did Obama wait till the end of the term to try to investigate a problem? Because Alabama prisons in 2012, there were 32,000 people in Alabama's prison. Mm-hmm. 32,000 were in triple triple bump sales. So. It has been worse than what it is now. You know what I'm saying? And the Department of Justice wasn't doing nothing then. These these issues that we see in the news with Alabama prisons didn't become issues until Free Alabama Movement made them issues. Mm-hmm. We made them talk about it because we blasted it. We put it out there in the public and exposed it. You know, so when they come in and say they're investigating, then we have to look at that uh, very cautiously. 
I'm a pessimist when when dealing with things like this because we have seen it too many times before. And then in addition to that, the federal government, if they want to investigate prisons, why don't they start with the federal prison? They don't have to come to the state. Federal prisons have the same and worse a problem than we have in the state. So I just can't I just can't buy it. I'd like to thank the Free Alabama Movement and Jailhouse Lawyers Speak for allowing me to use these audio clips we've used over these recent episodes. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Ben Yu has a fundraiser right now, and you can find that as the pinned tweet on my profile on Twitter. That's at J-A-Y-B-E-W-A-R-E. And in terms of supporting Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, as well as the Free Alabama Movement, both organizations are asking all of us to support the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March, which can be found at imweubuntu.com. Now I'll send it over to Kim and Brian to introduce Dan Berger. Dan Berger is an interdisciplinary historian specializing in 20th century American social movements and the carceral state. He is assistant professor of comparative ethnic studies at the University of Washington Bethel and adjunct assistant professor of history at the University of Washington Seattle. Berger is the author or editor of several books, including The Hidden 1970s, Histories of Radicalism, and a forthcoming Rethinking the American Prison Movement, co-authored with Toussaint Lossier. His award-winning book, Captive Nation, Black Prison Organizing in the Civil Rights Era, showed the central role prisoners played in the modern black freedom struggle. His writings have also appeared in numerous journals, newspapers, and magazines. He is an active member of the American Studies Association's Critical Prison Studies Caucus and a co-founder of the organization Decarcerate PA. You can follow him on Twitter at DNBRGR. So one of the things that stood out to me as I read your book, Dan, uh, has to do with who gets heard in this conversation about prisons. And I think that it's also one of the takeaways of the book, uh, but it's also an important point about history in general. Uh, and about official history in particular. Can you talk about what informs Americans' views of prisoners and prisons, but also how your book approaches the telling of history? Yeah, uh, thanks. That's a great a great set of questions. Uh, I think one of the things that was really striking for me in, in setting out, you know, on, on this research and which I began, you know, after a good, you know, t- 10 years or more, more than 10 years of of corresponding with people in prison and really being kind of mentored politically by by long-term political prisoners uh, as well as formerly incarcerated people um and so so on the one hand i i knew so personally right um you know had, had access personally to some of those voices but you know growing up in the in the 80s and 90s certainly there's no no sense right of where where you could find people in prison like that was not uh, that was not part of the sort of political or social landscape. Um, and so I was really struck with wanting to understand how, you know, what seemed like the period, you know, right before the rise of mass incarceration was also the period that had some of the 
loudest and clearest voices coming from prison. Um, you know, not only describing life inside, but also um, describing the world, right? And, and the prison was a sort of recognized vantage point within that. Um, and one of the things that, that really became clear in the research was that mass incarceration didn't just happen to coincide with that or happen to follow that, but that it was actually a deliberate strategy and goal of expanding the carceral state to remove currently and formerly incarcerated people and their loved ones and their communities from political discourse. Now, I don't want to romanticize it, right? It's not like currently and formerly incarcerated people or their communities had a, a major seat at the table in conversations about prison reform uh, or abolition in the late 60s and early 70s, but they were at least able to break through some of the traditional um, sort of blackout or, or, or traditional whiteout that <laughs> that exists within um, within mainstream media and even to some extent within policy circles. Uh, and so it was important for me to try and correct for that in, in telling that story. Um, I knew that I was going to do a lot of interviews with people, and, and I did, but I started out trying to just see the the paper trail. What, what, what were the archival collections and the voices that were evident there? Um, and it was pretty remarkable to find, uh, to find all these, to, to, to see how much a part of social justice movements prisoners were, uh, albeit for, for a brief time period. Um, and so that became part of the telling of the story, right? Really trying to sort of understand the role of prison within you know, the civil rights and black power movements by looking to currently and formerly incarcerated people themselves. Great, thank you. Um, you know, I'm wondering, you know, how how that sort of methodology methodology changes uh, the history for you. Um, you know, I was particularly struck in the beginning about your you pointing out how jails are such a were such a central part uh, of the civil rights movement. Um, but you know, commonly the way that we talk about it, it really kind of takes it doesn't take such a, a high level detail, you know, we talk about uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letters from jail, and we talk about, you know, the filling of the jails, but I, I was really struck by how you sort of raised the jail um, as a setting, um, and later on the courtroom as well, as a setting for struggle and for transcendence and transformation. So, you know, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, I guess, you know, that, that two-sided question there. One, you know, how your methodology sort of changed, you know, the common uh, understanding of history that we have into, you know, how um, sort of off of that jails and courtrooms are actually places of struggle here. Yeah, so it seemed to me that the prisons were really at, at the center of, of the upsurges of the 60s and 70s. And again, that, that we need to sort of understand how central they were to sort of understand how bad things have gotten since, right? <laughs> um, to understand mass incarceration as, in part, a kind of counterinsurgency against um, black radicalism and and other sort of related social movements. Um, and the, with the civil rights movement, you know, sort of fast for me, I, it's sort of entering this history thinking about people like George Jackson and Angela Davis and Assad Shakur, right? Thinking about the people who are who are identified with the kind of you know, more, more sort of militant, you know, outspokenly radical sectors of the movement. 
And I was trying to understand, right, so wh where, where do they come from? How do we get to, to a point where, where someone like George Jackson can become a best-selling author? And that, you know, sort of going, going back and going back, um, that, that's what led me to the civil rights movement, right? To, to see, like, part of what, what George Jackson did, right, and not, not by himself, but, but part of what he did uh, was to really remove the, the stigma, right, that, that being in prison meant that you, you know, were a bad person and had nothing to offer. Right. Um, and I think part, part of what enabled him to do that was, you know, several years of dedicated militant civil disobedience. And so I, in the South, right, just couldn't contest Jim Crow um, from people who otherwise have, you know, you know, middle-class comportment, right, the kind of stereotype of, you know, the, the church-going elders uh, right. alongside the sort of uh, radical students and, and youth. Um, right. And so, so to me, those things seemed really related, right, that, that, you know, whether it's King or Rosa Parks or Diane Nash or, Han, you know, a, a number of other people, um, you know, you, we need them, right, that, that not only for their work to, to overturn Jim Crow, um, but also to really show right how how central political repression right through the criminal justice system was and is to to racism, and I think you know it's, it's interesting to see how it, it's sort of the the secret hidden plain sight right if you go to you know memoirs from civil rights activists you go to histories of, of the civil rights movement. Jail is everywhere, right? Jail is all over the place. Right. Um, but very few people had actually analyzed that as a central site with, for the development of politics um, and for the kind of emboldenment of, of the movement. You know, I have a number of quotes in the book from, you know, Martin Luther King and, and a number of other people talking about how going to jail was a kind of communal experience, how it was a rite of passage, uh, how it was this experience that really... Um, strengthen the movement, right? Uh, and that, you know, it's not like jail is automatically going to do that, right? That comes from training and that comes from dedication, that comes from, from the moment. But it just really struck me, right? The criminal justice system is actually being repurposed, right? That the movement is, is really successful at saying, right? What, what you're throwing at us is, isn't strong enough to break our will or to break our spirit. And so that, I think, translated into, into the court system, right? Less for the civil rights movement and more for, uh, for the black power movement and, and for a series of radicals really, you know, going into the mid 80s, you had uh, handfuls of <clears throat> radical prisoners and, and, and radical uh, activists who were, who were trying to turn the courtroom into, into a, a, a site to convey their politics. Um, and to to really show that they were more powerful than than the system arrayed against them. So something uh, that you said earlier about mass incarceration as a reaction to you know, uh, and you write about this in a book, uh, being a reaction to black radicalism and social justice, um, really stood out to me. But so did you know the point that you made about. Um, what you learned through the writing of this book regarding the connection between, you know, prison conditions and marginalized communities. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that, if, uh, if you would. Yeah, for sure. 
you know, I, I think people often talk about mass incarceration by talking about the the massness of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that we could, you know, the prison system exploded by more than 500%. There are more than 2.3 million people in prison, you know, more than 5 million people under some form of state supervision, the, you know, 100 million who have a criminal record of some kind. And, and taking off all of these statistics is certainly sobering, it's, it's horrifying, but it can also become kind of rote at some level, right? It, become, it become, can become sort of mechanical. Mm-hmm. Right? And after a certain level, it's like, well, how do you even make sense of that many people, right? It just, it just sort of washes over you. Um, so I think for me, it's important to, to not only think about, you know, numbers, right? But think about it in terms of human beings, to think about the communities that, that, are, that are devastated, and to really think about it in terms of, of a kind of an expanse of degradation, right? <laughs> right? That, that it, it's not just that more people get locked up, it's that being locked up gets harder in a, in a number of ways, right? I think, you know, part of what, what happens after the, uh, or really starting in the 70s, right, is that, you know, different prison systems move away from this this pretense of rehabilitation, right? This idea of rehabilitation that we know was always more, you know, rhetorical than than substantive, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of what makes people like, you know, George Jackson or Malcolm X or any number of other prison authors so compelling, right? Is that, you know, they're they're describing all the violence that they experience, right, at the height of what was supposed to be rehabilitation, right? Systems based on rehabilitation. And actually they're saying, you know, this this is not about rehabilitation, right? Rehabilitation is this, you know, mask for all this violence and and racism and so on. Um, And so, so prison systems just say, okay, forget about it, right? And 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 the larger the larger state, right, says forget about rehabilitation. We're just going to do incapacitation, right? We're just going to lock people up and, th- right. and throw away the key. Um, and so you have, I think, you know, over. I I think about this as sort of two sides of the coin, right? On the one hand, you have overcrowding, and on the other hand, you have these kind of new you know, super, the super max, right? And, and other kinds of experiments and isolation. And I think they're, they're both sides of the same coin of incapacitation, right? Where, you know, prisons have at various moments throughout American history been overcrowded. But what I think you have beginning in the 70s on to the present is overcrowding as a management technique. Right. Mm-hmm. So that people won't be able to organize if we shove everyone, right, you know, if, if prisons are operating at 150, 175, you know, 200% capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or, or people won't be able to organize if they're locked, you know, in a prison, within a prison, you know, in a basement cell where they can't access other human beings for, you know, forever, right? For, you know, locked up in a cell 23 hours a day and so on, right? So I think both of these these styles of, you know, have really become fundamental to what we now call mass incarceration, um, I think actually became, you know, emerged as 
as management techniques, right? As ways to sort of shut down the kind of organizing that was happening in prison. Yeah, and you know, I saw this as a theme in your book, right? You talk of, you know, there's sort of this pendulum that that goes on or this blowback that comes from each successive movement. And again, I'm wondering, you know, on the subject of lessons, um, you know, I, I wonder if after researching this book and sort of looking at the give and take, uh, you know, what kind of lessons you would give, you know, contemporary movements um, to sort of prepare for something like that, or just to take it into consideration or what your thoughts are. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I think one of the lessons for me, right, is to, is to fight the prison system that exists, not the one that used to exist or that you want to exist, right? <laughs> right. right. Um, so, so I think, you know, talking about rehabilitation in some ways, I, I think is besides the point, because I think prison systems aren't really saying that they're doing that. Right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, uh, I think in the last few years, obviously, as mass incarceration has become a kind of recognized issue, um, I think it, it's provided it's provided an opening for uh, for abolitionists to 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 move from sort of just being abolitionists, right, <laughs> um, to to really kind of theory, think think through how we can have well, you know what I'm trying to think through as sort of abolitionist public policy, right? So how can we actually you know and, and I think there have been a number of successful campaigns along along these lines, right? How can we stop prison construction how can we you know get people out and make sure that they stay out right um whereas i think you know 15 20 years ago the great success of abolition was was really saying right it, it's not we can't just get stuck in thinking about this reform or that reform right we need to think about how the whole system is violent and racist and misogynist to its core um and that's still true, right? But um, but but in in a moment when everyone is is actually really paying attention to prisons, um, we have to be able to to adapt and think through like, okay, well, so how do we how do we then advance that agenda, right? Um, and now I think we're in this really interesting moment where prisons are, um, you know, on the one hand, you you still have people talking about reforming mass incarceration, and on the other hand, you have the you know neo confederates in the White House and the Justice Department, um, who are trying to really double down on things, uh, and so I think it presents a really unique challenge where we have to be able to to make sort of co common cause with people who are not abolitionists to to advance struggles where we can while while still having the the broader the broader picture right while still sort of um, staying true right to this idea of of abolition. Um, and I think that's part of where where the movement sort of faltered in the in the mid seventies, right? Is that people who had the more kind of sweeping, radical, or or even revolutionary approach um, forgot how to how to make common cause with others, um, and people who were who were better at sort of building those coalitions were just focused on this reform or that reform and not really able to see the whole picture. That that's a that's a gross generalization, right? But <laughs> no, that's great. But but I, but I think it, you know I, those dynamics obviously are not are not limited to to the anti-prison movement by any means, right? We can sure. see it in any struggle, right, where the sort of split between radicals and um, and liberals, right, gets uh, gets played out. But I think part of what was so devastating in in writing Captive Nation, right, was to see at least in California, right, that those splits had some real 
deadly consequences. Mm-hmm. Right? People, mm-hmm. you know, got in, you know, physical fights or or gun battles in in some cases over these differences, right? And that that not only set the movement back in terms of people whose whose lives were cut short by violence, but it set the movement back, you know, a generation, right? Because it it played into this narrative of of bad guys, right? Um, of you know what you know what what in the ninety in the nineteen nineties became super predators, right? Um, and so on, and so it really contributed to people, you know, even other progressives staying far away from anything that had to do with criminal justice, uh, which was a, a vacuum that that the right and you know both Republicans and Democrats really filled in uh, rather fully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you said uh, just a few minutes ago that, you know, everyone's, uh, or it seems like everyone's paying attention to prisons now. And uh-huh. uh, while I'm glad <laughs> that yep. people are paying attention uh, to mass incarceration and uh, there's more talk uh, around prison abolition and, you know, the, the phrase uh, the prison industrial complex has really, you know, taken hold and things like that. There's also, um, it's become, you know, invoked to use prisons as props and to use, you know, people in prison as props uh, in in a lot of ways. And what I mean by that is that for me specifically, I, I struggle when I see mass incarceration becoming part of the more um, mainstream and not just in popular culture, but in other spaces as well, right? Does that make sense? Um, Absolutely. And you know, one of the things um, that struck me as I was reading your book, and there there were a number of things, um, but it it has to do with, you know, how we, how Americans, and and this goes, you know, again, um, to, to the first question, I'm not asking you to rehash it, but, you know, how people think about people in prison, right? And that there seems to be, you know, an industry now, um, you mentioned this in the book, um, you know, that the prison is really about bettering yourself, or at least there was this notion, you know, um, not just for someone like, you know, George Jackson, but for a lot of people in prison, you know, that you need to better yourself, right? And um, I see that tied to um, ways in which we're talking about, you know, further managing people, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not arguing that we shouldn't, you know, that people shouldn't want to better themselves, but that becomes the end goal in itself, right? So it doesn't actually matter whether it's effective or not, but it becomes a prop, right? So it's like, okay, it's about respectability politics. It's about getting people to learn how to write resumes, um, uh-huh. which can be useful, it can right. be use- a useful right. skill. It becomes about checking off a bunch of boxes, right? And having, you know, people or organizations who can turn to and say, look, this is what we did in this prison. And that's what I mean by, you know, using the prison as a prop or using prisoners as props. Um, And I'm connecting that to what you wrote about imprisoned Black intellectuals specifically. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the work of imprisoned Black intellectuals so often gets relegated to a lower status, right? Particularly when we're talking about academia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you have more to say about this because you wrote a book on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to hear more from you and less from me right now. So um, I think there's a question in there, maybe 12. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I think the, you know, the idea of, of, of prisons and prisoners as props, I think, you know, is, is very well, well put. Um, and, you know, I mean, usually when I give a talk somewhere, someone will ask me what I think about orange is the new black, right? Or, or, um, or you know, lock up or, or any other shows, right? Um, and, and, do you and watch I, the show, Dan? I don't, no. I, okay, I, you know, neither do I. I've seen bring myself maybe, to, like, to, you know, because Neither can I. Okay, cool. Work, work at some level, right? But it's not like, <laughs> it's not work that I, I choose to do. Um, so it feels sort of non-consensual in some way. Um, and, you know, at the same time, right, I, I, I want to be, be true to what I was saying earlier about sort of recognizing the moment, right? And, and you know, that is something that people are responding to. And so it, does it create some openings, you know, maybe. But, <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, the, the prop can then stand in for, for the real in, in so many ways, right? That, that, that becomes so much about, you know, the spectacle and the shock value and the, um, or, or just sort of keeping up with pop culture in some way, mm-hmm. rather than being connected to, you know, to human beings, rather than being connected to, to the possibility of social change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I think that, that notion of, of, of props, right, actually goes in, in so many different directions, right? <laughs> um, I think the other, obviously in a, in a more, like, moving from the, the sort of cultural theater to political theater, um, you know, Obama, when Obama started doing some uh, sort of prison reform initiatives in the last year or so of his presidency, everything was exactly stuck in that sort of thin rehabilitation notion that you were that you were just talking about, Kim, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, I believe in second chances and, you know, people make mistakes and we need to, you know, give them another shot. But only but but that that was only true for, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that you know, a few hundred nonviolent drug offenders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the sort of lowest hanging fruit of the of the prison state. And on the one hand, it showed how brutal our how brutal the war on drugs is, right? That you could pick, you know, so many people sort of at random and be like, wow, this person has a life sentence for such a minor thing. That person was serving 80 years for, you know, and so on and so on. But it was actually not, you know, not only was it a drop in the bucket in terms of the kinds of changes that were needed, right? It, it, it also left untouched the the very logic of, of the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Right? Everything was about second chances. And then it was only about second chances for, uh, the sort of smallest category of prisoners, and it was all commutations of sentence rather than pardons. And so people that got out still face the same stigmas and limitations and sort of structural barriers that any formerly incarcerated person with a with a felony record faces. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, I mean, this notion of, you know, bettering yourself, one puts the onus of responsibility on the individual, has right. nothing to say about, you know, the system itself, right, and, or the structure, right. um, but it also gets narrowly defined in terms of, you know, um, what we think of as uh, what should be acceptable behavior, right, right. from, uh, from, categories of people. So if you better yourself, better yourself gets, you know, uh, translated into things like, okay, well, you have to have a college degree, right? And I'm not saying, okay, don't get an education. I think we need to open more access uh, to to education. Uh, But I think that, you know, my my critique comes in more, um, and this isn't a critique of the book, I think it's a critique of, you know, the way the system operates, which I think you do a very good job of um, bringing to light in terms of, you know, uh, drawing upon, you know, not just the, the oral histories um, and, and prisoners' voices in your work, but um, that we're seeing every single day, right? So yeah. it's like if, if someone is, you know, um, required to follow, you know, a script in order to be accepted into society. And I'm putting giant scare quotes around Mm -hmm. accepted because, you know, that that work is always happening. It's never finished. You're never actually, you know, um, fully uh, reintegrated because as you just pointed out, you know, having a felony conviction um, carries, you know, a lot of not just stigma but collateral consequences as well um and i think that that's you know one of one of the things that i really um that resonated with me uh when i was reading uh reading your book yeah and i think you know the the last few years right the the focus on sort of second chances comes attached to a um, conversation about you know uh, recidivism, but also a conversation about reentry. And on, on the one hand, you know I, I I'm I'm very fortunate to have spent almost a decade in Philadelphia and see some very profound, transformative grassroots. Uh, reentry programs and organizations like Reconstruction and the Institute for Community Justice, um, but but reentry, the world of reentry has just been this, this sort of boon for a variety of private, often um, uh, conservative, religious institutions um, that you know just because everyone's talking about reentry as you know, became the sort of buzz buzzword uh, of a field. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. To me, you know, I was sort of joking with people that someone you know need, needs to write an article called "Reentry as a Scam." <laughs> I think it raises a point, you know, in your in your book too, Dan. Where uh, in I think it's your first chapter where you talk about America means prison and how prison is really a regime of institutions that constrain. Black life. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the conversation around reentry and personal responsibility takes a lot of the pressure off of uh, conversations that need to be have about, that we need to have about entry um, in the first place. But, you know, I was wondering if you could talk about this concept of America means prison and the regime of institutions that constrain Black life, because I think that was another important part of your book as, as a way to conceptualize you know, really what mass incarceration is beyond, you know, just the simple jail or prison cell. 
Yeah, so that's uh, uh, that that chapter title comes from Malcolm X and something that he often told uh, audiences, right? When when talking about his own his own time in prison, um, you know, telling people not to be shocked when he says he was in prison because America means prison, um, and that's something that that the Black Panther Party really picked up right, and became, I think, really central to their um, to their kind of structure and, and worldview. Um, and so, part of that for me, right, what was to be able to to work through how formerly incarcerated people were joining these black nationalist organizations, you know, first the Nation of Islam and, the, and later the Black Panther Party, but also others, right, that, that I think there needs to be more, more research done about, right, other organizations, you know, whether they're national or, or local, um, really recruited from, from formerly incarcerated people. And so again, it, it was a way for me to kind of think through um, how the problem is not just mass incarceration if we understand mass incarceration to be the number of people that have the number of more people who have gone to prison since right. the 1970s um but really to see how right, working class black communities in particular have a much longer and you know consistent struggle with police and and prisons right as as the kind of Iron Fist next to the housing and employment and uh, education discrimination. Right. And so to see how many people were coming, whether out of you know juvenile, the various kinds of juvenile detention or juvenile imprisonment, or you know the sort of adult you know criminal prisons, that that became the kind of uh, recruiting grounds and and an important kind of connector um, from the community to to a kind of radical struggle on behalf of the community. Um, and to, to see, you know, when people like Malcolm X say that America means prison, or when someone like George Jackson or Angela Davis says that, you know, the, the, the state of prison conditions it is a sign of incipient fascism within, within the United States, you know, I have to have to keep in mind that they're saying that at a time when the prison population is around two hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so again, it just sort of gets us back, right? That the issue is not mass incarceration; the issue is prison. Right. The issue is is sort of what a number of scholars talk about as racial capitalism. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that until you know that that prison becomes the most sort of concentrated expression of all the same hierarchies of power and violence that exists throughout society. And I think currently and formerly incarcerated people were and and remain such sharp critics of that, right? And, that, and that's something that I really want to sort of, that the book really tries to, to surface, right? How how's, there's a certain kind of almost prophetic voice there, right? That people just sort of reflecting on their own conditions and on their own surroundings saying this is messed up right mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and it's not just messed up because of what's happening to me right? it's messed up for what it says about about the society right for what it reflects about the society as a whole um not because prison is this this exotic strange unfamiliar place right but precisely because prison is is a familiar but more exaggerated form of everything else that we know in society mm-hmm. Right. 
Um, and so that to me was such a such a sharp insight that you know whether you're talking about you know Malcolm or um, or Huey Newton or any number of, of other kind of black radicals uh, in the the sixties and seventies were were really um, putting out there right that that I think history has proven them sort of tragically right about <laughs> about. Mm-hmm. But but it's just sort of shocking to keep for me to keep coming back to that right. They're they're describing fascism. They're describing state terrorism, and and the criminal justice system is a fraction of its current size. Right, not just the prison system, right? But the criminal justice system is a fraction of its current size. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As uh, as uh, Tony Montero likes to say, the canary in a coal mine. Yep. Yeah. Right? Exactly. You know. Um, so you raise a, an important point that I think uh, often gets glossed over when we're talking about, um, you know, uh, prisons and uh, black intellectuals, right? Um, and in this case, imprisoned black intellectuals and the use of their ideas by white European thinkers um, who, you know, fail to credit um, or even acknowledge the debt that they owe to people like, you know, George Jackson, um, or as you point out in the book, you know, the Black Panther Party section that I'm thinking of specifically, and this has already caused some 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 issues between me and some folks that I know. So I'm I'm just giving you a heads up because <laughs> they're 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 upset. Um, I'm not because it it just uh, it's it's nice it's nice to read it um, and to have it you know, uh, in black and white, but it also speaks to a number of problems that, that I've, and many other people have noted, right? Mm-hmm. So you said, uh, and this is on page, I'll tell you right now, page 155. Um, no, I lied. It's <laughs> not on page 155. It's on page 154. And the paragraph begins with, one of the most enduring influences Jackson had was in France. Thanks to Jean Genet, uh, Jean Genet's support, Jackson's work circulated widely among the French intelligentsia, and his ideas informed the development of what ultimately became known as post-structuralist French critical theory. Historian Rebecca Hill argues that Soledad brother, quote, inspired the young Michel Foucault to think about the relationship of the reform of the soul to the maintenance of power, end quote. Working with philosophers Jean-Paul Sartre and Gilles Deleuze, among other prominent intellectuals, Foucault was one of the spokesperson of the GIP. I'm not even going to attempt to say that in French, so let's just (laughs) stop. Uh, Which investigated and reported on French prisons, borrowing from the American prison movement, an approach that joined the public's right to know with the prisoner's right to dignity. GIP released several reports about American prisons, including one about Jackson's death. What survives most, uh, what most survives this encounter between black American prisoners and white French intellectuals is Foucault's classic Discipline and Punish, first published in 1975. And here's the kicker. The book makes no acknowledgement of Jackson's influence. And I'll stop there. Everybody, you can go and pick up uh, Dan's book and, and read the rest of that paragraph. But I think that that, that right there for me speaks to you know, the, the erasure that happens um, when, you know, some white intellectuals 
co-opt, uh, take, borrow, steal, um, <laughs> the, the intellectual labor, black people, um, and fail to credit them, right? So can you talk a little bit about that since you yeah, did a great job bringing that up in the book? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, and, and thanks, for, thanks for reading the, the passage. I have to enlist you for an audiobook version. Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it's, I mean, obviously, uh, as I'm sure you, you know in your experience, Kim, right, Discipline and Punish is such a, a classic text, right, of, of a variety of, of intellectual traditions, right, that read Foucault. Um, that's, you know, still assigned in, in grad programs around the country and, and surely around the world. Um, and it's, you know, within a kind of critical criminology um, tradition within the U.S., right? It, it remains a touchstone, even for people who say that he's wrong about about this thing or that thing, and, and certainly he, I think he is wrong about, about a number of things in the book, right? Um, but still, you know, more than forty years after its release, right, it, it remains a a book that people that people go back to, right? That, that continues to sort of offer offer insight, and and it's just so, you know. Uh, striking to go, to go back to it. And then it's striking to, to be reading, you know, Jackson and Davis and, and other, you know, the Attica brothers and, and other kind of prison intellectuals from that time period. And then to, to, to trace out those connections, right, through, through Jean Genet and to see how a number of, of people in France are really bringing, you know, what's happening in the U.S. and then trying to make sense of, of prisons and the state in their own country and in their own context based on what's happening in the U.S. And, you know, and you can read some of that work in, in different anthologies. Um, and some of it's quite, quite stunning, right? It has, it has this urgency, right, of, of responding to conditions in, in really robust ways. But when that, when that be, gets to the moment of the kind of scholarly intervention, uh, in Foucault's case, it becomes a kind of, you know, sort of, example of, of a kind of pure scholarship, so to speak, right? The the detachment, the quote unquote objectivity, um, that even though it's fiercely argued in its way, there's no there's no sense of its of its intellectual emergence, right? Of of, of where why and where and from whom he's he's thinking through these questions. Right. Um, and so it allows it allows the book to sort of stand alone as Foucault's brilliance. And obviously no, no book right gets produced in, in isolation. Right, no book gets produced in a vacuum. Of, yeah, out of the author's genius alone. Right, every 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 book is a is sort of co created, but perhaps discipline and punish more than than many right? is, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is is co created, and um, and it's really you know I, I mean so, some of what what I write about on. on on the page that, that you read part of. Some of it is, is from my own research, um, but some of it was drawing on a, a scholar named Brady Heiner who, who went to France and uh, actually translated, some, you know, found some of the, the GIP's pamphlets from the time period and translated uh, some of them, including the one that, that they wrote about Jackson's death. Mm -hmm. um, and he wrote, mm -hmm. for, for people who have access to it, he wrote a, a brilliant, article called Foucault and the Black Panthers mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in a British journal called City. Um, 
that that really teases us out in, in much more depth. But you know, to me, it, it's stunning. Not only you know does Foucault erase his debt to I think Jackson specifically, and the, and the Panther specifically, for whom we can really tease out. You know, the he's just sort of two two people removed, right? I mean, th those connections are very direct. Um, but he even makes no mention of his own sort of activism in in GIP, right? Mm -hmm. there, there's, there's no sense that he is engaged in these issues at all. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't think every every statement by every person needs to, to list their full resume by any means, but but to not see any kind of emplacement of, of the collective context uh, is very distressing. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think it's, you know, the, that book has been roundly and, and appropriately criticized for, for ignoring racism generally, right? Foucault's argument that, that prison moves punishment from the body to the soul misses all manners of ways in which, uh, you know, black people generally and, and black prisoners in particular faced a set of, of physical violence that continued to, to scar the body right. and, and not just the soul. Um, so there's, you know, there's a sort of problem of racism generally that he's alighting um, but to just have no mention of uh, of that kind of collective um, struggle or collective conversation that shaped those ideas uh, is really devastating, right? To to what uh, to what that book could could be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and to me, you know, I mean, it's part of why I started my book with that kind of, with the with the preface, right? That that does try to say like this is a book that that is co-created, right? This is a book that I could only write because of um, the years of uh, mentorship and relationships and sort of, you know, chosen family relationships, uh, as well as organizing uh, around prisons that, mm. that taught me what I know, right? Mm -hmm. um, not, not to deny the hard work that I put into it, but it is to say that hard work only makes sense within that, that collective context. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, you talked about this a little bit earlier, um, where you said that you know um, you had been mentored uh, by a lot of people in prison, as well as you know people outside of prison, and that your experiences in in Philly organizing and all of these things uh, have informed um, how you think about and write about prisons. Um, and can you talk a little bit about, you know, um, what you do say at the beginning of the book? I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty clear. Uh, and again, I'm encouraging folks to go out there and, and uh, pick up a, a copy, order a copy of, of the text. Um, but I think that that's part of this conversation, especially in the context of, you know, other things that we've been talking about uh, so far, not only in terms of you know whose voices get heard, um, but also in terms of um, the acknowledging right um, the debt that is owed to other people that that have helped you, um, and I think you do um, you do a good job of that uh, from from the outset, and I think that it, it's to make it clear for the audience. Um, that they should know a little bit more about who you are and you know what brought you to this work. Yeah, well, th thank you for that. 
I'll say, you know, the, the other reason why I, I did the, pre the preface as a more sort of personal, um, personal kind of positioning um, was also a, 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 a polite <laughs> counter or sort of polite alternative to, you know, what I think M Michelle Alexander does in the start of the new Jim Crow and what a number of other pop com popular commentators have done which is to present a kind of personal preface that says I was blind and now I see, right? I used to not think about prisons and, and then suddenly I realized mass incarceration is this problem. Um, and, and what I wanted to say is that, you know, to give other, other pathways, right? <laughs> um, and to kind of normalize how much prison affects all of us, right? It affects all of us in, in different ways, you know, based on a, on a set of circumstances. But, um, but, but to sort of challenge this, this easy conversion, right? Of like, oh, you know, I, I wanna write to more like, you know, liberal middle-class people to say like, oh, you too should care about this thing that doesn't affect you at all, right? <laughs> um, and so for me, it was, uh, you know, being, a, a teenage activist in high school and sort of moving not long after after getting into sort of activism and politics um, from upstate New York to South Florida, very um, very big change, right? <laughs> and sort of being uprooted from from a sort of you know small but developing kind of political community to this new and and more conservative place, um, and trying to to build connections in some way. And so writing to, you know, I, I wrote to any, any kind of progressive or radical organization I could find um, and, and tried to sort of build relationships where I could and ultimately came across um, uh, a book called Can't Jail the Spirit, which was sort of short biographies of political prisoners in the U.S., um, this would be in the in the mid-1990s. And, you know, all, all the people in that book were people who, were active in the 60s and, and had been incarcerated since, you know, the 70s or 80s, and, and the majority of whom had been incarcerated longer than I had been alive. Uh, and, you know, for, for too many of them, that's, that's still the case. And so that, to me, was, was a real exciting moment. Right? <laughs> and, I, and I started writing, writing people uh, from, from that book, you know, former members of the Panthers, of the Weather Underground, and, and other similar kinds of groups. Um, and again, you know, for me, like I also was, you know, in the suburbs, like from a, a middle-class family, like I had not had, not had much, um, certainly no encounters with, with prison before, um, and had some encounters with police at different, you know, demonstrations and um, cops had, you know, broken my friend's arm and, and different things like that. But, um, but I also was, was very sheltered from, from the prison system. Um, but so, so to me, it wasn't out of an interest in prison. It was out of an interest in in politics and trying to understand the world. And you know, from from the suburbs in South Florida, those were really the only people I could find who <laughs> who um, you know had been around since the '60s and and who were excited to talk. Mm -hmm. And you know, as those sort of letters became and sort of blossomed into sort of long term relationships, um, 
you know, and started to to visit and started to go through the things that people with with incarcerated loved ones go through. You know, sort of battles over over healthcare and refilling commissary and the you know emotional journeys of um, emotional as well as physical journeys of of the visiting room. Um, you know, it just sort of dawned on me increasingly and increasingly like how important prison is to understanding the last 50 years in this country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm just sitting here saying, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, well, I mean, definitely go big or go home, right, Dan? Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, you're like, I'm just going to write to all the political prisoners that are here in this book. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, Maya Shenmore, we had Maya on a few weeks ago, and she said, okay, well, you know, uh, start with the pen pal, and right. boy, you talk about some pen pals there. I mean, you right. really, um, uh, that's, um, that's an incredible story, right? Yeah, and, um, I like to say that it's, it's sort of a cautionary tale of the suburbs, right? <laughs> <laughs> And don't get me started. I'm an, I'm an urbanist, so yeah. it just, um, yeah, it's like I, I, I'd break out in hives. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, it is, it is, I mean, I joke about it, but it is really true, right? The, the growth of these kinds of suburbs is also in proportion to, to the growth of prisons in, in you know, rural parts of, of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. um, these kind of walled citadels, right? On the one hand, sort of walled, walled citadels of privilege, and on the other hand, walled citadels of, of repression. Mm -hmm. um, but they really, you know. Well, I mean, it's it's not them. called white flight for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> That's it's right. you know, people uh, leaving you know certain communities, um, you know, and, and moving out to the to the suburbs to to get away from, you know, from black people and yep. immigrants and um, anyone they consider other. Um, and that's pretty much everyone that doesn't look like them. But you talked a little bit earlier about um, an abolitionist public policy. And, yep. um, you know, you're either reading my mind or <laughs> you are, you know, you have access to my computer somehow, <laughs> in which case we're going to have to talk then. But um, what does an abolitionist public policy look like to you? I mean, what, do, how do you imagine that? Yeah, well, you know, I'm still, I'm still thinking through it, right? But I, uh, and I, I'd love to hear what, what, what you both how you both would answer that, um, but but I think you know as as abolition as sort of developed the ideas around it have developed in the last you know two two decades. Um, I've seen a number of really striking and and really important essays and and initiatives that think about things like restorative and transformative justice. Um, that think about how do we you know, sort of de decolonize our minds from thinking like people that we don't like and or our opponents, you know, belong in jail, right? Or jail the bankers or, you know, jail work, you know, Trump is a war criminal or Bush is a war criminal, you know, jail, et cetera, right? Where, where jail and sort of policing just sort of occupy our, our minds, right? And how do we divest ourselves from, from those kinds of notions that, that just serve to the kind of naturalize prisons? And on and on and on, right? There are, there are lots of really great, uh, really profound both thinking and, and organizing around those questions. Um, and 
none of those is to scale around contending with you know the annual budgeting processes that states go through that upholds the prison industrial complex right right the the daily and monthly and and annual uh allotment of funds and resources to police cage and kill other human beings and so for me the idea of abolitionist public policy is how can we actually sort of scale up the the organizing right so that we are directly contending with with the state around those resources right um so that you know instead of you know when 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 you know episodes of, of police violence um happen and sort of make the news right so the answer is not about body cameras but the answer is about how do we how do we have less police right how do we disarm the police um that when prison uprisings happen right the argument is not about rehabilitation or re-entry right or any of the other things we've been discussing but how do we have fewer people in prison and how do we make sure people don't don't go to prison in the first place um and so i you know i learned a lot from the organizing i was a part of it with decarcerate pa which is an organization based in philadelphia that that still exists although I, i'm not a part of it now that i live in seattle um but to me that that experience was really informative and really educational um to to really contend with how the state works right to to learn how how to how do states fund prisons? How do states decide to build new prisons? Um, how do states make sentencing policy and so on and so on, right? Um, and so, so to me, I, I want to think about like how we can intervene in that work, but do so in in abolitionist ways, because right? mm. th those are certainly conversations that you know the groups like the Sentencing Project, right, has certainly been following, right? Lot, lots of lots of organizations pay attention to those things, um, mm. but not all of them are are doing it in abolitionist frameworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, which one is doing it? In, <laughs> uh, maybe that's, oh, yeah. did I say that out loud? <laughs> I mean, when we were starting Decarcerate PA, I, I should speak for myself, I certainly learned a lot from uh, Californians United for Responsible Budget. Mm -hmm. Curb. Um, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and the California um, Prison Moratorium Project and, and Critical Resistance are, are all kind of interlinked organizations. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, the New York uh, Correctional Association, I think, was trying to do some of that work, certainly with, when, when Sophia Elijah was, uh, was running it. I think you know groups like release aging people in prison uh, in New York are also sort of trying to do it. And you know there there are there are others. I mean these these were one those are ones that that I think we were sort of saw ourselves in 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 coalition with. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that that's the idea, right? Of to me about abolitionist public policy, right? Is how do we how do we actually intervene and and shape public policy from an abolitionist perspective, which I think you know, means operating from the from the understanding, right, that we can't wait for the system to decide that that it's broken, right? We, we can't wait for the system to decide that it's oppressive and abusive. Because um, as we've been talking about that, you know, that's, they're not going to do that, right? That's, they're not, it's not set up to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, at the same time, it's not enough, or at least I don't think it's enough to say, well, the system's never going to recognize how how violent and and oppressive it is, um, and so we can only think about, you know, 
what, what we can do with our neighbors, right? Or we can only think about uh, on the sort of small individual and interpersonal scale. Um, I, I think we actually can sort of re, you know, how, how do we re remake the state, right? And whether that's towards the ultimate end of of abolishing the state or 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 not, I I don't I don't feel the need to to decide at this exact moment, right? Mm -hmm. um, but but I I think we can imagine a sort of public policy agenda and platform and approach that is squarely abolitionist, um, and and that can have those fights, right? Because I think those fights really need to be had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, to your point about you know. Um, abolishing the state uh, and boy that's another that, that should be a whole series right yeah. there. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I think that and this is something that I've been mulling over for for quite some time that if uh, you make abolishing the state a condition you know of um, of doing the work uh, you it becomes overwhelming right, right? to say that we can't, you know, we're not going to be able to get anything done, right? Because until you get rid of the state, then, you know, you're not really doing abolitionist work. And I think that they're really good, um, well-formulated, you know, arguments that go into depth about, um, you know, about that right there um and that there are also valid arguments on the other side so i think that part of what i appreciate about what you're doing with your book but also in this conversation is pushing us to think a little bit more about all of these different questions and that having to come up with an answer um isn't necessarily the thing that we are it isn't necessarily the goal but yeah. it's to craft perhaps better questions um, to be empowered to ask those questions and to push us beyond, you know, the ways that we're thinking about these issues currently, which is, you know, a lot of times, um, at least in my thinking, very oversimplified um, and, and not helpful in terms of imagining something other ways of being with people um in in the world other than well we just got to lock them up and forget about them right yeah you know oftentimes when uh, i'm sure you guys have, have both experienced this as well but you know when i talk to my students or, or other people and i if i say the, the word prison abolition you know they'll panic and think well well what are you going to do like if if there are no more prisons tomorrow like what are you going to do with you know the worst of the worst or, or whatever sort of fill in the blank right the, the, uh, whatever sort of bo boogeyman people, people right. conjure up and like i've i've started to to just sort of call out that 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 question itself as a problem mm -hmm. because it rests on this idea that you know whereas i used to say well you know we could do this or this whatever um and now it's like, well, you know what? That question is bogus. There's no central switch, right? That that we're going to go and flip, and then all the prison doors are going to open, and the prisons are just going to collapse, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea that abolition is somehow this sort of instant 
you know, event, right? That that someone's just going to go in, into that, into prison headquarters, right? And just push the button that says abolish, right? Oh my God, <laughs> and, if and, only. <laughs> where's that button? Yeah. I'm, I'm willing to take, you know, I'm willing to do this for, for everyone. I'm not, I volunteer. Um, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, well, so, you know, it's a, so there's not that button, right? So, so instead public policy is like, to me, like that, that's, that that's the the potential right of, of what i'm trying to think through as abolitionist public policy um which is to say like okay like let's let's figure out how the state works and let's figure out how how the state can do at least if the state can't do more good things at least how to figure out to get it to do less bad things right mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so uh, to me like you know as i said a minute ago like learning about how how budgets get made, right, and the actual processes through which prisons get funded and prisons get staffed, um, which also meant, therefore, learning how prisons could get unfunded. To me, it was like, oh, like th this is this is the opening, right? There's 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 not central, there's no there's there's not prison headquarters with that button, right? But there mm -hmm. is there is a budget that happens every year, right? <laughs> there are mm -hmm. there are these different kinds of moments that we can actually, you know organize right sort of grow grow our power right as, as abolitionists as organized communities um to actually say like you know we're not going to open that prison right we're going to close prisons we're gonna um, we're gonna have fewer police right that we're gonna think about you know universal health care right and, and recognizing things like universal health care are abolitionist demands mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we think about like how many people would not go to jail if they were not self-medicating right if, if people had had their needs met right how many of a whole set of of offenses would not would not even occur right um so to sort of recognize those things as as abolitionist demands right and, and not only recognize them intellectually but actually organize around them as abolition right which is to say you know even people talking about single payer aren't typically aren't connecting that to issues like mass incarceration Right. Um, but I think we, we can make that connection, right? And we, we can mm -hmm. recognize that the fight for healthcare is also a fight, a fight against prisons and vice versa. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and that and I think is more, more realistic than that, that uh, you know, that prison headquarters central button. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In terms of thinking about an abolitionist public policy and how, you know, what you just said about people not connecting, you know, uh, universal healthcare to prisons um, or to mass incarceration or thinking about it in uh, carceral terms, right? Um, as someone who went through a graduate program in public policy, uh, I could tell you there was never, not once ever in any course, <laughs> <laughs> any discussion ever of prisons at all. Uh-huh. None. None. And yeah. and this is, you know, this is one of the things, I mean, not just a, a, a sore point for me, um, but you know, a, a major um a major obstacle because it's also one of the critiques that I have of public policy. I mean, the function of public policy is not necessarily to raise these questions that we're raising. Right. Yep. So the function of public policy is basically, OK, this is how the state functions. So it takes the state you know, for granted and it takes the functioning of the state 
according to a particular model, you know, for granted. And much of the approach that's esteemed in public policy is about costs and benefits. And we hear about that, you know, we hear that um, when we hear policymakers debating and, you know, talking about, um, you know, uh, mass incarceration, right? Uh, or, you know, uh, whatever, you know, issue is happening. It's about, you know, what are the costs? What are the benefits? And uh, I think that's part of the problem, right? Yep. That, that lens right there um, informs how everything else gets done. So there is no room in that, you know, in, in that conversation to talk about, you know, a different approach because the esteemed approach has to do very narrowly simply with costs and benefits. Now, yeah, you have, you know, other um, other approaches in public policy, but those tend to be thought of as a little more, you know, um, esoteric isn't quite the word that I'm looking for, but for lack of a better term right now, um, those approaches tend to be less well regarded um, and, and the approaches that, you know, uh, policymakers look to are the ones that are tried and true. And it's like, okay, just give me the numbers. What are the numbers? What do we get out of this? You know, what's in it for me, basically? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's a huge problem. It's a critique. I mean, I, I think you articulate it well when you talk about, you know, um, these, uh, these various approaches and getting people to understand, you know, not just how budgets get done, but that, more generally that um, disrupting and abolishing the system uh, also requires a look at local politics, right? And yeah. it's happening at the local level, right? So when people are doing this hand wringing about, you know, well, how do we get to abolition? And, you know, um, uh, we're never gonna get there. And I, I don't expect this project to be done in my lifetime. You know, and that was something that, um, you know, and I and I wrestled with that because I felt like, you know, I, I'm going to live for about three thousand years, and if we can't <laughs> do this in three thousand years, what the hell? Um, but I think that you know, it, it speaks to um, how you know the the difficulty that people have with getting on board with an abolitionist perspective. Right. So we get, you know, we get emails um, all the time. We get people commenting on, you know, um, various things and they're like, you know, but what about this solution? Or, you know, well, can you give us examples of this or what about that? Right. And part of thing that is being reflected in in these comments is um, a desire to see, you know, a solution. Right. So they people are searching for that abolition button. <laughs> as uh -huh. you pointed out, right. Yep. That they're looking for, okay, well, how do we do this? What's the model? And there's not a single way that there's, you know, a lot of disagreement about what abolition, you know, is, how it's constituted, how we make it happen, how we get there, that, you know, some people are too radical, some people aren't radical enough. And, you know, there's so much happening in this space, um, but I like what you said, you know, about, okay, let's look at something very simple. Oh, simple, I say that in jest, uh, how do budgets get made, yeah. right? So let's ask those questions and, you know, moving people to focus more locally. Um, right. I don't know, do you have any 
uh, final thoughts about this? Yeah, no, I mean, I think to me that, that that's exactly right. And, and I think to me it was, it was really helpful, right? Outside of some of, to, to get away from some of the kind of abstractions that can sometimes happen on the left, right? About, well, in, in our ideal world, is it going to be, are we going to say tomato or tomato, right? You can sort of <laughs> go, go down the rabbit hole about what's going to, what, what it's going to look like you know, like after the revolution or something like that. And and obviously, you know, a lot of that is is unknowable, right? But in the meantime, if we all agree that prisons are vile and violent, right? That that caging human beings is is not a solution to I don't know, Dan. Did you see that that, that discussion around, you know, the that excerpt from Hillary's book last week. I don't think that we have agreement about prisons. I, I don't, from what I could oh see, God. people are really, you know, they're like, oh, it's not so bad. Oh, this is, you know, this is well, not yeah, no, Sorry, I, I didn't mean to. No, 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 quite all right. No, I, I certainly not, not in the broad sense. I don't think we have an agreement, but it, but if we, if we who are abolitionists, right, can agree on that, then, then we can agree, you know, that, that, we need that, that getting people out of prison, stopping prison construction, stopping, you know, expansion of police departments, right? Those things are, are innately good, right? Um, and we can sort of throw, throw our energies there that will actually get us along the way, right? Toward, towards abolition, right? And I think if we can sort of free ourselves on the left from having those kinds of abstract what in the, in the future sort of debates, I think it allows us to to sort of wage those fights and do that organizing that, that can make an intervention in the way that you're talking about, Kim, with people who, you know, who can read that abominable passage from, from Clinton's book and, and not, not see it as a problem, right? Because mm. um, I think we still, even though mass incarceration now is, is a phrase or a concept that people think they understand, right? <laughs> that think that they have an awareness of. Um, we obviously have a, have a lot of work to do, right? To get people to really understand what it is, right? How it came to be, and, and perhaps most importantly, what, what it will take to end it. And I think, uh, yeah, that sums it up quite nicely. Thank you yeah. so much, Dan.